Thank you guys so much. Man, the worship team did an awesome job, right? Let me give it up one time for Pastor Will, Mary, Francisco, and Greg. I'll tell you what, man, this is a good-looking water right here. I was looking over at this thing the whole service. I was like, this is this right here. Break into this real quick. Listen, bro, that's what I get for preaching. I got to enjoy it, you know? But uh, all jokes aside, you know, I count it as a, as a huge honor anytime I get to uh, be behind this desk and share with you guys, you know? Because to see where God has brought my life in um, really a short period of time, if you look at it, and to know that um, everyone in this room is positioned to be the same place as me, because God is no respecter of persons, really encourages me, and like specifically um, this word that I, I believe God laid on my heart, like I think it had I think we have one of the most incredible opportunities in the world here right now in this room in this place because of the community that this program provides to be able to take a hold of the word that I want to just put forth for you guys right and nothing specifically happened um, necessarily to lead me to share this but I want to talk about um, unity it, to be honest I didn't like really have a direction um, I just kind of dug into the Bible and you know, everything started to come together and, you know, things that have been on my heart for weeks now would be drawn back out and, um, you know, confirmed in, in what I was reading and what I was hearing and what I was studying. You know, and it was, um, it just, just, that was it. It just happened. It just kind of came to pass, right? That uh, this message, I, I've called it a kingdom culture, right? For you guys that have to... Uh, put the sermon title on your chapel notes, um, kingdom culture. You know, I know that unity is very important to God. And um, if you want to start to turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians in the fourth chapter, um, I just want to dig into, like, you know, what unity really looks like on a practical level. And just dig into what um, Paul says to the Ephesians here. You know, um, I, th I think so highly of all of you guys because if uh, you guys would allow me, you know, we have that tagline that says hope lives here, freedom is found here, and changed lives leave here. Uh, if, if you would allow me, I want to add something to the end of that tagline change lives, change communities, and change lives, change families, change lives, change legacies and futures. So I look out into this room of men and I see a sea of potential. So is everybody at Ephesians chapter four? You know, Paul, the, the church of Ephesus, I mean, Paul is speaking to Christians. 
here. And he, and he kind of lays out in the fourth chapter a standard of living that we ought to meet, right? And um, if you would join me, I want to read quickly verses 1 and 2 if I can open my Bible. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. When's the last time you felt like you were completely humble? <laughs> you know, um, Paul starts his, uh, his argument and by urging the uh, church of Ephesus here to make allowance for each other's faults, to try to understand, because he's painting a bigger picture here about unity and the role that everybody has to play in the body. And he's trying to make a, paint a picture for everyone to understand that everyone plays a unique role in the kingdom of God, right? So he urges us to be patient, to be humble, to bear with one another, right? Everybody has, I, I feel like when you're going through the program, everybody has that one person who just like gets under your skin and like every time they pass by you, it's just like, ah, you know, um, you just walk by them in the hallway. Even worse, if they're in your room, it's even worse. You know, uh, I remember this guy who, uh, is, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I talking to the right uh, group of guys here? The... Uh, there's this guy here. I'll leave his name out <laughs> just in case he's watching. <laughs> but um, he really did not have a concept of, like, personal space. And I remember this one time, man, I was, like, pissed at this guy. I'm, like, missing my hairbrush for, like, weeks. And one day I'm just fed up with it, you know what I'm saying? And I go, and his dresser was next to mine. Man, I'm, like, so meticulous. I, like, put everything exactly, like, where I know where it's going to be. You know what I mean? Like I don't like OCD to the max. So like this this brush goes missing and it drives me nuts for weeks, right? And I look in this dude's top drawer and what do I find? My airbrush. He'd been using it. And you know, I went with like every intention to just have him feel every piece of my wrath. And you know, nothing sunk in. But it was a funny story, um, a lot of stories like that. But, uh, you know, there's a reality here that, that Paul is talking about where those feelings that, that come up in us to, like, want to challenge and want to, like, have a defense for ourselves necessarily, he's, he's kind of saying that those, there has to be a point where those feelings die before the needs of the kingdom. Right? In, in verse 3, Paul, s Paul shares, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. To make every effort, not some effort. You see, grace levels the playing field for all of us as Christians. Grace makes us all sons and co-heirs of God, right? And the Holy Spirit creates an environment where oneness can happen, 
where unity can happen. However, as Paul is instructing here to make every effort, if there was no requirement on an on a interpersonal level, right, for us to put forth an effort to, cre- to maintain the peace, then we wouldn't have to, I, I wouldn't have this sermon here in front of us, right? I mean, we know that, um, that God is our peace, right? And, and we're going to jump into uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, but it actually says that word for word. But we have a, a, a role in maintaining peace, right, on, a, on an interpersonal level with one another, right? Peace is the glue that keeps us unified. But to keep peace, we need to have a relationship with the Prince of Peace, right? Beca- where he is ministering peace to us. How could we think we could have peace on our own strength? Peace is a, a fruit of the Spirit. By living a life worthy of the calling, as we read in verse 1, we keep the peace with one another. Keeping peace often involves a great personal sacrifice. I can tell you I wanted to ring uh, my friend who took my hairbrush by the neck, but I couldn't for the sake of peace. Verses 4 to 6, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This chapter points to being connected to God and being connected to one another. Paul offers the illustration of a body, right? And everybody should know a body because we all have a body, right? And um, the body it symbolizes our role in the kingdom, right? Of coming under Christ in unity to carry out the mission of Christ the head. We are the body under Christ the head, right? And when the body is connected to the head and the body's relationship with the head is in good standing, the it knows what to do. I mean, there's no it knows how to act. Um, a hand doesn't have thoughts of its own. A command comes down from the brain to the nervous system to say, hey, grab this, and you grab it, right? So you guys following me. We're able to be connected to God and love, connected to God and each other because of what Jesus did on the cross. The playing field is leveled. We are all unified under Christ in the body. That's what Paul is telling us here. So when we cross our arms and harden our hearts to our neighbor, it's a big problem. You know, I, I, I see it as like crippling the body. The body of Christ doesn't function as it ought to if its members are turned against each other. If two body parts are fighting against one another, it makes the task at hand much more challenging and sometimes even impossible to do. Not that we have the power to keep God from doing what he wants, should he choose to. But I'm sure you guys can understand what I'm saying here. But in verse 7 of chapter 4, Paul says to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We have the grace that we need to maintain peace and unity amongst each other. Skipping down to verse 11 and 12, Paul talks about, um, read it for you guys quickly. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Right? And all of us are gifted uniquely. 
for one purpose, building one another up under one mission, Christ and the kingdom of God. But we can't build anything with our arms crossed. When we start to see things that make us different as a problem instead of a level of uniqueness that furthers the kingdom, then we become disunified. When we allow comparison to create insecurities in our lives, we can't operate in our full potential. Our uniqueness, as a matter of fact, affirms our unity. A body wouldn't be made up of only mouths, would it? Because it would do a whole lot of talking and not allow it to get done. We need one another. Verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Unity breeds maturity, and maturity allows us to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Like, I read that, I'm like, man, I want that. You know? There's like a level of fellowship and community that God desires for us. That's why in Psalms 133, verse 1, it says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Look at the implication that this text is giving us of what our fellowship should look like with one another. And when you look at your relationships in your life, honestly, take a look. Do you see that? Do you see relationships living up to the full potential? Verses 14 and 15. Then, when we're built up, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is head, that is Christ. Here we have the why and the how. We become mature so that we aren't blown back and forth by every wind and every teaching and the how by speaking the truth in love. Spiritually immature people, Paul compares them to infants, are unstable in their commitments and easily deceived. This is what the text is telling us. Verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Do not live as the Gentiles. The New Living Translation, I just read the NIV, it uses some words that I, I thought were profound. It, it describes the Gentiles as being hopelessly confused. Hopelessly confused. Gentile, for those of you that don't know, for our intents and purposes, is somebody who is not Jewish, right? And thus n doesn't know God, right? Does not know the Jewish God. They are kind of like drawn a line in the sand, they're on the other side. They have no chance of redemption, no chance of eternity with God without, you know, coming through the Jewish faith, Jewish practice, Jewish um, family lines, right? 
So Christ coming on the scene creates a way for Gentiles to be included in this inheritance, right? But Paul is urging the church of Ephesus, who he's writing to, that they can't meet God, right? These are Christians, remember. You can't meet God and continue to live the same way. You have to put on a new life, a new way of doing things. If we skip ahead to verse 21 to 24, it says, When you heard of, of, about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self to created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, this is a daily commitment. A Christian cannot pattern themselves after someone who doesn't know God because the Christian has experienced the miracle of being raised from the dead. And his life is not futile, as the text shared, but purposeful. The Bible illustrates this transition from death as taking off the grave clothes and putting on the life that Christ gives us. And even later on, Paul encourages the church of Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God. But that's another sermon for another day. People who don't know God think themselves away from God. But whether it be intellectual pride, political or religious views, people are more eager to prove they are right than hear an opinion that might contradict their own. And people will totally cut you off if you have an opinion that doesn't line up with theirs, even if it's the truth. This is the society that we're living in. This is not a, a political message. This is a kingdom message. The term people have coined for this kind of act is cancel culture, which is why I named the sermon kingdom culture. People, I'm telling you, I see, I can't log on to my Facebook without seeing people tearing each other to shreds because they don't agree on certain issues. And God has just burdened my heart so heavily over this. I, these Christian people that I see canceling people out left and right, not taking the time to bear with, to try to teach. They contradict themselves because they won't take the steps to bring about actual change, right? They just want to take the easy way out hit the block button, not have to deal with it. You keep your problems over there. But leading people to actual change is hard. And people don't want to do that. It's a lot easier to say you're canceled. Thank God he doesn't deal with us so mercilessly. That's where you're supposed to say amen. Thank God he doesn't get fed up with us and cancel us because none of us would be here right now. Cancel culture totally stands as an affront to kingdom culture. If we are to follow in Christ's example, then cancel culture should be far from us. But how many times do we find ourselves ready to cancel someone out? 
I used to be so sensitive, and and I, w- I remember, I mean, I was that dude. If you offended me, you're canceled. We could live in the same house, but you're dead to me. Where in this book is that character trait reflected in the heart of God? And I'm telling you to be transparent. This word came to me first, and God had to really heal me from that. You know, I don't want you to think that uh, I still act that way. But some people will cling to their ideologies and philosophies all the way to hell just for the sake of proving a point. You know, the Pharisees, when Jesus would teach, they would demand for Jesus to give them a sign. Show us a sign. It wasn't because they wanted to see God move. It wasn't because they wanted someone to get healed. But they wanted to prove their point. That if Jesus didn't heal this guy, then he's not the son of God. Or if Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath, then he broke the law and he's not perfect. Right? Oftentimes, the path to Christ-likeness is simply laying down the right to have a defense for yourself. I said keeping the peace can involve personal sacrifice. And sometimes you don't get to prove your point for the sake of peace. Sometimes you don't get to say, I told you so, for the sake of peace. Sometimes you don't get to have things your way. But allow me to ask you this. If you disagree with God on an issue, and if your feelings don't align with what God says, would you still submit to him? Because to say no is to say that God is not God. And it's to remove him as the head of your life. If it's written in this book, is that enough for you to submit to him? Verse 18 of chapter 4. Continuing to talk about the Gentiles. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Gentiles, people that don't know God, are separated from the life of God. If you aren't unified with God, then you certainly aren't going to be unified with the people around you, much less the people of God. Then what do we make of the body of Christ with his head cut off? And the body turned against itself. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. Do you see what Paul is telling us here? Do you see the magnitude of what this means for us as Christians? The disagreements, the, di the differences and the division we create between each other are so insignificant and so meaningless and so ridiculous in comparison to what God has done in Christ to reconcile us to him. The distinction of a Jew and Gentile was one that God himself established. Prior to Christ, there was no hope. There was no relation to God. God himself drew the line in the sand and excluded them. Let's pick up in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace in one, in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Or as Pastor Will put it, we are the Father's house. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So, I guess what I want to pose to you guys tonight is that if God himself overcame such a significant separation, what do we make of our disagreements? We were far from God foreigners, strangers, aliens, hopelessly confused, living in darkness, separated from the life of God, and he brought us near to him. Do you understand what that means? That's major. I remember what it was like being far from God. Hopeless. And now, to be called a citizen, a son, and a friend of God. We were once divided, like we read in the text. But God made us one. So how can we fight against each other? Who are we to try to unreconcile what God himself has made one? 
Under what authority do we cancel other people? Where in God's character do we find this trait? Allow me to put into perspective what is really happening when we allow our issues to affect our relationships and our fellowship with one another and our unity. We're going to have a little illustration here. Let's say Dave Ross cursed me out. And he told me he was going to take me out back, bounce my head off the concrete, <laughs> pepper spray me and tase me and all that. And I said, Dave, you know what? You're dead to me. I'll never forgive you. You're canceled. In essence, by doing so, we look up to God and say, hey, God, you know, I know you performed literally the most momentous act in history to bring everyone under one accord under Christ. But my problem that I'm having with Dave is more important than that. We degrade what God has done in Christ to reconcile us to him. For what? Petty little arguments. How does that make sense? How does cancel culture fit into the kingdom? It doesn't. It cannot. I want to take us back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, as we get ready to close, actually. And um, if the worship team could come up. You know, um, I read the verse. Verse 32 says to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You know, the gospel story should reshape every part of our life story. Not the other way around. We forgive because Christ forgave us. We love others unconditionally because God loves us unconditionally. And we set our disagreements and our divisions and even our own personal rights and needs aside for the kingdom because Jesus set everything aside for the sake of the kingdom. And he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our powerful example to follow in this area of unity. You see, there's something interesting. You know, Adam, in the book of Genesis, he should have obeyed unto life. That was God's intention. Instead, Adam sinned and brought death. But Jesus obeyed fully, even unto death. And his obedience brings us everlasting life. By the grace of God, we take off the old man and put on the new life that Christ gave us. We step into Christ's life, and he takes our death. But we can't be at odds with one another, holding unforgiveness towards one another. Look at all that Christ did to forgive you. 
for you to be here right now. And you're telling me you can't forgive your brother. I would encourage you to go read 1 John 4.20. So I'll close with this. And I'll turn the service over to uh, Pastor Will. But Christ has reconciled us with himself and one another. That we would build each other up under Christ. We accomplish nothing by living like and thinking like and acting like people who do not know God. The differences and the disagreements that we have and that we create amongst one another are so insignificant in comparison to the work that Christ has done in reconciling us to God. So I'll leave you with this last sentence. We cannot cancel what God has reconciled. Amen.